Acts chapter 22. We're going to pick up where we left off last week. I'm not going to read the full text that's listed in the bulletin. I'll read part of it. If we can work our way through that, I might read the rest of it and keep on going. We'll just see how time allows. But setting this in context, all's worshiping at the temple in Jerusalem. The Jews from Asia began a kerfuffle. They began a riot. They snatched Paul, dragged him out of the temple grounds, and started to beat him soundly. They got the attention of the Roman soldiers who stopped the riot. Paul was permitted to speak to the people who were just beating him. And they listened to him until he mentioned the exclusivity of Christ. They were not going to hear anything about the Messiah. Our text, Acts 22, beginning at verse 23. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, a tribune, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, Yes. The tribune answered, I bought my citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, but I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately, and the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he could be he had been that he had bound him. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet, and he brought Paul down and set him before them. In chapter 23, looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. And Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, Would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. And when Paul perceived that the one part of the Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with this respect to the hope of the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And then he said, And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angels, nor spirit. But the Pharisees acknowledge them all. 
Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, We find, we find nothing wrong in him. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night the Lord stood by Paul and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Let's pray before we go any further. Father, we ask this day that you would help us as your children to learn from Paul's example and to see your hand at work in his life that we may understand how you work in our lives. And help us, Lord, as we follow this lesson understand that we may have righteous burdens for your glory in this world, but we must wait upon your schedule and even sometimes recognize your strategy. May we glean this from these words in your scripture this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Most of us use a calendar or an app on the phone, a schedule, so that we can plan our days, our weeks, our months, sometimes even our years. I used to know a preacher who said that he knew what he was going to preach 18 months ahead. He had that much planned out every Sunday for a year and a half. And I thought to myself, probably unkind to think this, please forgive me. He must be a control freak. But sometimes we will have schedules laid out as a to-do list because we have tasks to, to organize, tasks to accomplish, and we want to mark them off as they get done. I try and do that. I'll confess I'm not very detail-oriented. Things come to me in an orderly fashion, things I need to do, but when I set them down in a list, being a pastor, I'm often called away, can you help me with this? Can you go here? Can you do this? Can, you, can we meet? And so my schedule, my time gets reorganized, reoriented very often. Schedules on calendars often get changed. This morning I'd like to talk to you about Paul's calendar, Paul's purpose, and Paul's schedule. And there wasn't really much wrong with it. But what we also need to see is that we must consider God's schedule, God's calendar, and God's strategy. Sometimes they don't always mesh. They are always coordinated. As we look at what happened with the Apostle Paul, we need to look back briefly. Acts chapter 19, verse 21. 
the Apostle Paul had resolved in the Spirit, he was praying in the Spirit, as he often did, resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. He was on his way to ending up his third missionary journey. He wanted to go further west. He wanted to go all the way to Rome to share the gospel. That was on his heart. He was burdened to do so. But he needed to go back and report to Jerusalem. That's where we find him in this. It's almost as if he was saying, this is my to-do list. This is on my calendar. And God told him, in a sense, through the Spirit, that he would go to Rome. Now, Paul was in Jerusalem, as we read in our text, expecting soon to leave for Rome. He might be delayed a bit because he would need to raise money for travel. He'd have to do some deputation, get some funds, get some support. And he was at the temple fulfilling a vow when he was snatched out, dragged through the gates, and then beaten. An interruption in his plans, no doubt. A change in his calendar or his schedule. Roman soldiers stopped the riot, as we talked about last week. Paul was permitted to speak to them, but they all started up again. That's where we pick up on our text. Verse 23 of chapter 22, as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and fleeing dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging. The tribune did not know who Paul was. He just knew that he was in the middle of a riot. He was going to find out what was the problem. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? Roman citizens had rights. They had irrevocable privileges, much like we in the United States used to have. We used to be innocent until proven guilty, but now if there's ever any kind of a problem and the police are called, they're going to handcuff everybody and put them in the back of a squad car until they find out who started it or who did it or who did what. It's almost at that level you're assumed to be part of the problem. But a Roman was not even allowed to be stopped, slowed down, or hindered without a formal charge or a trial. And here Paul was bound, and they had taken his arms, and we're not sure if he was stretched out this way or to a post or on the floor. But he was flayed out so that he could be beaten soundly. And he asked, is it lawful? to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned. The centurion assigned to the task of <clears throat> interrogating Paul goes back upstairs to the tribune and says, what are you doing? We can't beat this man. Excuse me, we can't ask this man any questions. So the centurion comes down. 
Are you a Roman citizen? Tell me. Yes. The Roman citizen said, I bought my citizenship with an expensive price. People were allowed to do that back then. But it still didn't hold quite the same socially. It still didn't hold, may have legally, but not socially, hold the same status as a natural-born Roman citizen. This Roman soldier had purchased his citizenship, paid a magistrate a fee, and declared a Roman citizen. Paul was born. I remember years ago seeing something on television. Somebody was visiting people in Texas, and uh, they asked me, were you born here in Texas? No, I wasn't born here, but I got here as quick as I could. You probably understand that if you're born somewhere, you're rooted there. It's the same kind of thing with being natural-born Roman citizen. And the tribune respected that. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately, and the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. He had already broken the law handling Paul. Paul could have filed a complaint, filed an appeal, cited this Roman soldier for improperly treating a natural-born citizen of the Roman Empire. On the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he is being accused, he unbound him and commanded the priest and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before him. The tribune said, I want to find out, I want to get to the bottom of this. If this Roman citizen is being mishandled by these Jews, then something needs to be done. So the Roman tribune called this meeting together. He got the Sanhedrin together and he brought Paul in with a military escort. Chapter 21, looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. Imagine with me the chief priests and all the council. There's 70 men of Israel there. These were the elders. These were the authority in Israel. And Paul gets in that, in that courtroom and looks them in the eye. Someone who is guilty does not have enough courage to do that. Paul looked intently at them. And I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. He looks them in the eye. He's confident. He's bold. He knows the Lord is with him. He is fearless as he has always been. He knows that he is within the law, both the law of Moses and the law of Rome. So he really should have nothing to fear. 
verse 2 of 23. The high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. And Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law you order me to be struck? Perhaps the high priest was insulted because Paul did not begin his remarks with some recognition of who he was, or some obeisance or, or exaltation of his rank. Your benevolent lordship or something like that. But according to the law of Moses, according to the law of the Lord, Deuteronomy 117 says, You shall not be partial in judgment. You shall not hear the you shall hear the small and the great alike. You shall not be intimidated by anyone, for the judgment is God's. The Lord told Israel through Moses, You treat the humble and the wealthy alike when it comes to judgment. That is also reaffirmed again in Deuteronomy 17 and in Deuteronomy 19. And it is believed that Nicodemus was appealing to this in John 17, or excuse me, John 7. The high priest then had sent some men out to arrest Jesus, to bring him in, because they wanted him stopped. But they came back so amazed at his preaching. And Christ had evaded capture. They were impressed at his preaching, and they were telling this to the priests and to the Sanhedrin. And Nicodemus says, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? So the priest was disobeying the law of Moses. He was being a hypocrite. Next time you read or are reminded of Proverbs 18.13, it applies. He who answers a matter before he hears it, it is a folly and a shame to him. Paul came before them to present his case, and before Paul could even finish, before he could even get started, he is slapped, trying to intimidate him. Hypocrites about the word of God. And after Paul's rebuke, those who stood by said, Would you revile God's high priest? Remember, Paul called him a whitewashed wall. I mean, he just looks good on the outside. There's nothing behind him. Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. I cannot help. You know, when you read written words, you cannot read or sense the tone in the voice or the lilt in the voice or the way it was presented. I cannot help but think the Apostle Paul was being a little bit sarcastic. I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. He certainly wasn't acting like a high priest. Verse 6 said that when Paul perceived 
that one part were Sadducees and the other were Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope of the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. In a sense, he was, because he was placing his hope in Christ Jesus, whom he was preaching. And that was a big part of the ministry of fulfilling promise of Christ himself. So he was appealing to the conservative side, wearing their their hat, red hats, make Jerusalem great again. And the other side, the Sadducees, the liberal theologians, they didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in the spirit or the soul. They didn't believe in angels. So the Sanhedrin was divided. When he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the, the assembly divided. The Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge all of them. Lost Jews in that day were a lot like woke Democrats and MAGA-Republicans. MAGA Republicans called the Democrats out on one of their lies, and the liberals just shouted out louder and start riots. That's the kind of thing was going on here. We see it today in this world, but it's in the political realm. It's not so much in the church, although there are divisions within churches. But we need to recognize what's going on when that happens. Someone is wrong. Someone is appealing to the wrong kind of truth. Someone is appealing to the lie and not the right kind of truth. Verse 9 of 23, a great clamor arose and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, we find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, these guys started to hit one another. The tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. The tribune was responsible for the safety of this Roman citizen, so he was doing his duty. He saved Paul again. And the following night, the Lord stood by Paul and said, Take courage, for you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Paul, Rome is still on your calendar. The schedule has changed. You might not get there when you thought you would, but you will get there. We need to take this kind of lesson in consideration in our own lives because we very often make plans, and I know that most of them are just for the mundane, everyday things that we have to take care of for family and home and work. But if we are ever burdened for anything of the Lord and we think, I want to be able to do this for the glory of God, we need to be very careful. 
to wait upon his schedule, to follow his leading, to recognize how he provides and how he hinders, how he clarifies a way and how he shuts doors. Sometimes he's not saying no. Sometimes he's just saying slow down. James 4.13, come now you who say, you who say to, today or tomorrow we will do such and such. Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. So even here, James is talking about secular things and not necessarily spiritual things. Yet he goes on, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is written, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. The Lord might not stop you, but he may delay you. He may ask you to slow down. Seek his face in wisdom. We may have calendars to live by. We may have schedules to run through. Give the strategy to the Lord. Follow his leading in what you do. Paul's strategy was tragedy. Paul's strategy was to stay in Jerusalem for a little while and raise money for funds to travel to Rome. It's further than he had ever been. He would have to book passage on a ship and would take time and effort. Let's very quickly, we have a little time to see what happens. Verse 12 of chapter 23. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine the case, this case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near. These next few verses will tell you why I have titled this passage, God's Strategy for Uncle Paul. Verse 16. Now a son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. Who knew Paul had a sister? He also had a nephew. And this nephew happened to be around when they were planning this assassination. They're going to kill Uncle Paul? So he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to your tribune, for he has something to tell you. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul, the prisoner, called me and asked me to bring this young man to you as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside asked him privately, What is it that you have to tell me? 
He said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than 40 of the men are lying in ambush for him, who have bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, Tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Then he called two hundred centurions and said, Get ready two hundred soldiers with seventy horsemen and two hundred spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. Talk about first-class security. This centurion, excuse me, this tribune immediately acted to get Paul safely out of Jerusalem. And we will find out that he is on his way to Rome and he is traveling on Rome's dime at Rome's expense. And the beginning of a trip under Rome's safety. It's strange how the Lord provides. Said so Paul, you will go to Rome. I will make the way. Verse 25. The centurion wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lucius, to his excellency, the governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews, was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him. Having learned that he was a Roman citizen and desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before, before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On the reading of the letter, he asked the province, asked what province he was from, and when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. So the tribune arranges Paul to have a hearing at another venue, a place with no threat, a place under protection. He charges 400 soldiers and 70 horsemen to guard Paul on the way. Even gives Paul a first-class seat on his own horse to ride. They get to the city of Antipatris, and some of the soldiers return to Caesarea. But Paul and the horsemen continue on. When he arrives at Caesarea, he goes to the governor and the governor says, I will hear your case. And it says here, 
He puts them up in Herod's praetorium, Herod's palace on the seashore. You ever want to go to the beach? That's where he was. God provided in a very wonderful way to keep Paul safe. And he's a little bit closer to Rome. God's calendar, God's schedule, God's strategy for the life of Paul. We can see that if we look for it and we pray for it in our own lives. Some of you who study history may have heard of Elijah Parrish Lovejoy. He's a Presbyterian minister who lived in the early 1800s. He was also a journalist and a newspaper editor. He was also an abolitionist. He wanted to stop slavery in America. He left the ministry in order to take up the business of running a newspaper. He owned a newspaper and wrote articles and columns and editorials about the abolitionists, and he, he exposed criminal enterprise about slave running and slavery in his state. And he was hated because of it, but he wanted to put an end to it. Elijah Lovejoy was murdered by a mob. He became a martyr to the abolitionist cause. And he's also hailed as a defender of free speech and the freedom of the press. But it's really quite unusual. You might think, well, what a waste. He was 35 years old when he was killed. But there was another young man who was influenced by him who once wrote accounts of the outrages committed by mobs form the everyday news of our days. These accounts have pervaded the country from chilly New York to sunny Louisiana. He's saying it doesn't matter if you're in the north or in the south. Mobs and riots over this issue pervade the United States. These events are neither peculiar to the eternal snows of the former north or the burning suns of the latter. They are not the creature of climate. You can't blame it on the weather. Neither are they confined to the slave-holding or the non-slave-holding states. Alike, these mobs spring up among the pleasure-hunting masters of the southern slaves and the order-loving citizens of the land of steady habits. Whatever their cause may be, it is common to the whole country.
If we are to live our lives by the whims of mobs, it is a recipe for national disaster. Elijah Lovejoy, his life and his death influenced a young man who wrote these words, and his name was Abraham Lincoln. I believe it was God's will that, in, that slavery be abolished. I know it was. Elijah Lovejoy had a passion to put an end to it, but God's calendar, God's strategy, God's schedule. I want to say it was wiser. I must say it was wiser. But it raised up a whole generation of people who would pay the price to put an end to it. We as Christians need to stand on the same kind of principles that Paul was teaching. To live for the truth of scripture, to live for the truth of the gospel. To find the freedom from the bondage of sin can be played out happily in our lives to the liberty we share in our nation. We as Christians all need to be following God's schedule, God's calendar, and discerning God's strategy. Shall we pray? Thank you, Lord, for the time that we share this morning. Thank you for your word and its truth, and we pray that as we follow you, Lord, may we have the courage to be faithful. May we have the patience to wait upon you, and may we have the discernment to see your strategy at work, that we may be ready when we are called to go. It is in your name we pray. Amen.